0: on this episode of the Alt-Normal. normal, We can
1: tell stories about ourselves without feeling like we have to be adjacent to whiteness or another group. We can be who we are without being the quote-unquote model minority. We can break out of those labels ourselves. I think that's the new story.
0: Another coronavirus vaccine has shown to be highly effective. Welcome to the Alt-Normal, an exploration of the diverse voices on planet Earth.
1: Joe Biden will
0: become President of the United States. Doing the critical work of rebuilding a healthier, more sustainable alternative future. At the intersection of self, community, and the planet. We live in uncertain times.
1: Powerful moment of revolution.
0: How we choose to steer the path will determine what kind of alt-normal we consciously remake together.
1: Everyone has a part to play. Let's
0: Let's rise. rise, rise, rise. Shift and support this exciting new reality in the making. The alt-normal. Hi, I'm Tiffany Wen, the host of the alt-normal. This is a show that centers embodied integration as the absolutely critical force for rebuilding this post-pandemic world that's ever more sustainable, diverse, and inclusive. Culture needs a rebrand that goes deep at the core of who we are in the integration of our rich diversity, complexity, and emerging alternative paradigms. Let's be real, we are in a crisis of consciousness realizing that the only way to change things out there is to first change things in here. The power structures and institutions can only take us so far. To see a world that's diverse and inclusive for all actually requires us to change from the inside out, shifting into actionable models of power with one another versus power over one another. Now more than ever, we need a new story for humanity that leans into the diversity of who we are and our emerging zones of genius to live more truthfully in how we relate to ourselves, our community, and the planet. So let's pick up those forgotten pieces of ourselves to rebrand our story of humanity from one of separation to one of integration. We're talking integration of the mind with the body, the scientific with the spiritual, strategy with emergence, and the individual with the collective. This show is produced by Resonance, the creative practice of Dig, Seed, Grow, a methodology that powers our core capabilities in branding and content creation. Our mission is to design resonance between brands and their most valuable audience to drive the greatest possible impact. After 20 plus years of working in New York City and Milan for Fortune 500 companies and marketing and advertising, we decided to take the big leap and make a fundamental shift in how we work and bring brand stories to life. The Alt Normal is recorded at Destination Outpost, a co-living and co-working community based out in Bali. They have amazing spaces located in Ubud and Chenggu. That enable people to live and work from paradise, encouraging people to live differently so they can work from beautiful destinations and build strong connections with others on a similar path through life. So I am so thrilled to introduce our guest today on the Alt Normal, Carrie Jong. So Carrie is the founder of Asian Mental Health Project. An initiative that aims to educate and empower pan Asian communities in making mental health care more accessible. Founded in 2019, the project currently uses social media, multimedia content creation, and community events to destigmatize topics of mental health, critical social issues, and provide tangible resources. A daughter of Chinese and Taiwanese immigrants, she graduated from the University of Southern California, also my alma mater, and currently works as a communication and marketing professional in the tech, entertainment, and music space. In her free time, she loves singing, making art, songwriting, and trying the latest fluffy food trend. Carrie, it's such an honor to have you with us today. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's so interesting having the bio read out loud because I'm like,
0: who wrote this? I love it. It's a combination of depth and lightness, which I think is always a welcome balance. I feel like this is a conversation I'm excited to have because it's all about that sort of warrior spirit and being an activist and doing what you can for the community. Um, So fight on. So I uh, am excited to get into all sorts of things with you today. Um, And to start our conversation off, I kind of want to dive in and set the space for the current moment in the U.S. So definitely not um, as fun as fluffy food trends, but definitely important. And I want to start off with sort of the anti-Asian sentiment that has really surfaced in 2020 and still in 2021, and also the hate violence that has emerged. So um, this Instagram platform called Now Simplified, which makes politics easier and more accessible, just released some data that showed that More than 2,800 incidents of discrimination have reported since COVID started around anti-Asian sentiment. And just last week, um, an 84-year-old Thai American man was murdered, and more assault has ensued. So this is, you know, not something to take lightly at all. And I just want to pull out an excerpt that I found in a Time article that shows that this sort of racism around Asians, especially uh, during moments of disease or pandemic, aren't new. So they say, in quotes, In the 1800s, out of fear that Chinese workers were taking jobs that could be held by white workers, white labor unions argued for an immigration ban by claiming that Chinese, I say that in quotes, disease strains were more harmful than those carried by white people. And then back when Trump was still president, he referred to COVID-19 in very derogatory names such as the Chinese virus or Kung flu which helped normalize Asian, anti-Asian xenophobia, stoking public hysteria and racist attacks. And now, as in the past, it's not just Chinese Americans receiving the hatred. Racist aggressors don't distinguish between different ethnic subgroups. Anyone who's Asian or perceived to be Asian at all can be a victim. So even wearing a face mask, an act associated with Asians before it was recommended in the U.S., could be enough to provoke an attack. So there is a ton in there. And you being an Asian American yourself, um, living in the U.S. at this time, probably have a lot of your own personal experience woven into this. So I know this is not the lightest place to start, but I just want to ask more broadly and personally during COVID, have you yourself experienced any level of anti-Asian sentiment or what has your experience been like uh, this past year?
1: Yeah. No, thank you so much for diving right into this subject. I think it's very timely and very important. And I don't think, not that it's not talked about enough, but I think we need to talk about the depth and the history of racism and xenophobia, um, you know, particularly against um, Asian folks in the U.S. Because I feel like, you know, these these sorts of topics, or whenever something is referred to uh, an, an issue in in Asian America, I would say it's oftentimes brushed to the side or put in uh, you know in tandem with something else. When really, I think it needs to be viewed as its own issue, and also not in isolated events. You know, it's this is not some like there are many things that many issues in the system and in our culture that have led us to this moment where we as like a collective community are grieving. Um, So, yeah, I mean, back to your question about, you know, my personal experiences. I mean, I think I had a particularly strange experience right when a year ago, when, when COVID was first emerging and it was, it wasn't something that I'm not used to because I couldn't tell the difference between whether or not this man was like cat calling me in what he perceived to be an Asian language or whatever he perceived to be my language, or if it was he was saying something in regards to COVID. But because of that, I was very on guard and and you know, very careful and concerned sort of. Proceeding down the street with that. So that was sort of an instance there where I sort of felt uncomfortable. Uh, and, you know, speaking to folks in my community uh, with my mental health project, you know, there have been a lot of people who have experienced, um, you know, whether it's like going to the grocery store, you're wearing a mask and people are staring at you a little extra hard, you know, um, and, you know, that's not a foreign experience to folks and people of color and all that. But, but it, it, it's, uh, relatively new because it's in the context of, of the pandemic, uh, here. Um, so yeah, uh, the other instance that I really wanted to highlight, um, was, yeah, I think when things first came out, um, you know, that, you know, the, the virus is from Wuhan, you know, it, it's originated in China. There's all these conspiracy theories around it, which obviously, you know, I don't want to speak on because I don't have, I, I don't think I've looked into it enough, but anyway, um, my, uh, my father was actually like, hey, um, he called me and he was like, if anybody asks, like, do not tell anyone that you're Chinese. Like, don't say anyone your your background, just say you're Taiwanese. Um, and that was, you know, I think a little heartbreaking <laughs> to say, just say like a little bit. I mean, there's so many layers to that. One, to feel like you have to hide and deny your identity because of a fear that's going on, you know, that is super, yeah I mean heartbreaking it was hard for me to process and two, it sort of made me like like I was like I sort of wanted to rebel against that and be like I want to be as loud and proud of who I am as as I could be but you know that that was sort of my my rebellious reaction there but at the same time i I also internalized that sort of um you know pushing down my identity, shoving down my race, um, whether it is for safety or because I was trying to live up to family expectations and stuff like that. But I don't know. Um, I'm not sure if that answered your question, but I mean, it definitely, I think affected my household, but it's also not something that is not expected because of the 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 sad
0: and and rich, deep history behind it. Thank you so much for Being vulnerable and sharing that up front, I feel like even though I'm not currently in the US, but being a Chinese American myself, I can very much relate to what you just shared. And I don't believe we're alone. So uh, shifting gears now into what you created... Asian Mental Health Project, which you began in February of 2019. And I just want to say, first off, thank you so much for creating this. Um, Congratulations. This is no small accomplishment. And I know you were also featured, yeah, in CNN's um, roundup of people of color that create their own mental services online, which was amazing to see. And you, I think came in at such a timely moment. It's like you forecasted this need before it was really needed in the ways that it is now. And so just for our audience of listeners, can you tell us what is Asian Mental Health Project and why did you start this when you did? Yeah.
1: Thank you so much for asking. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, acknowledging all the, uh, all the, it's, it's, oh my gosh, now it's February, 2021. Oh my gosh. I can't believe I'm just hitting me that it's, it's been two years since it started. So, I mean, Asia Mental Health Project as it stands today, I think you mentioned before, uh, basically I wanted it to be an accessible resource where people could get Information and resources on mental health care in a digestible, easy way, so um, the way I came about this is i'm personally not a mental health professional at all. I actually you know i'm in p r and communications, and that, what that is all about is about synthesizing information and making it more digestible to a general public so a couple years ago february twenty nineteen uh, I had Graduated college, you know, relatively recently, uh, and I was just reflecting and reminiscing back on on my college experience and and my mental health journey, and uh, it sort of made me realize that I, if I had resources and, and these sort of digestible resources I'm talking about, uh, and even just just the vocabulary to talk about what was going on in my mental health, um, going on with my mental health, and if I had the family or environment or, or you know support to to be feel comfortable talking about these things, I think a lot of A lot of my mental health journey that were the parts that were most difficult throughout my college years and only early adult years could have been mitigated or prevented at even a younger age. So, you know, I sort of wanted to make something that I wish I had in a way, uh, in a way that people like me who are not mental health professionals and not really in this field can understand. So, you know, fast forward to today, you know, we try to, you know, create multimedia or social media resources. I joke and say that, you know, 2020 was also the year of the infographic, the the scroll through on Instagram. Um, And so, you know, we tried to Leverage social trends and, and utilize like fun, creative ideas in the effort to make mental health care more accessible. But beyond that, um, you know, we also have community events, which are you know more interactive and and um, they serve an educational purpose. Of course, uh, we have our weekly wellness check in. You know, every or most every week on Wednesday you know, we'll have an open space for people to just share and, and, and be with a community that that sort of looks like them or has gone through similar experiences. But then the second half of that section, uh, they can hear from a mental health or wellness practitioner to in in an effort to make that resource more accessible. Um, I hope that answers your question, but (laughs) long story short, here we are.
0: (laughs) Congratulations on the two-year mark. And I actually found you, I think, just scrolling through Instagram. And I thought, wow, it's so visually appealing. And there's such variety of Asian Americans doing wonderful and important work. And it did feel very palatable. So um, as someone who found you that way, I can definitely echo what you just said. And I just want to pick out a part of Asian Mental Health Project, and it's your weekly stay-in check-ins sessions, bringing people together to share and to seek out guidance. And you've held sessions on topics covering a wide range of mental health issues. I'm just going to read out a few that I saw recently. So for example, releasing perfectionism, an act of self-compassion, unpacking people-pleasing as a trauma response, finding balance between success and happiness. So you really have a range here. And in these two years, assuming that you've been part of each of these weekly sessions and have had a chance to meet the community and really hear about their pain points, their struggles, um, their stories. What have you seen that has been the impact or the greatest impact that have your your sessions have had on the community?
1: I mean, when I think of the impact that my project has, I'm sort of turning to, uh, maybe this is a marketing PR in me, but I'm seeing growth, you know, in, in our social media channels, in the people that sign up for our project. And then also, I'm also seeing people who come back every session. They, I have folks who have come back um, literally since our very first session, which was last March, uh, when the pandemic sort of um, struck and came down. Um, so I'm like, if these people, <laughs> if people are, are following and, and listening and and being a part of these events and asking for more and and criticizing instructively, then this must mean something to someone. And I think when I was first starting this the the wellness check-in specifically it actually it sort of morphed from me wanting. Well, firstly, actually, it started as as me wanting to to start like a, a survivor uh, support group. But then the pandemic hit and then I realized, you know, lots of people uh, perhaps need a virtual space or some sort of space for it to, to connect, so, you know, stay in check-in sort of thing. But I mean, in the beginning, I wasn't sure of like how to do this or what I wanted to do with it or you know i wasn't sure if this would be helpful to people i didn't know if it would make an impact i didn't know a lot of things how it would execute it and i think the best piece of advice that i've gotten um which i take to this day is um my friend was like you know only do this if you feel like it'll help your own mental health if you feel like this is you know purposeful for you or helpful to you so yeah i mean i've taken that so it's made an impact on my life and Uh, I always sort of believe in, in bringing the personal to the universal, like sharing from your own lived experiences and finding comfort in listening to others' experiences or, or learning something. Um, So yeah, I mean, (laughs) in a nutshell, very long, not succinct nutshell. Yeah. I think that is the impact. It impacted me, but then I'm also seeing growth in the community. So hopefully it's, 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 it's supporting someone. (laughs) Yeah.
0: That's wonderful. And I love what you said about making the personal universal. And let's go personal. Has there been a particular uh, wellness check-in that really surprised you or helped you understand yourself and heal or find some respite from this current moment of division and um, hate violence and all the other things that follow that list? Yeah, oh my gosh.
1: I know it's wrong to say all of them new, but you know, all of them I generally learn something new, if not from the practitioner, from the folks that were you know listening to. You know, I think specific topics are you know um, one recent one you mentioned it before, people pleasing as a trauma response. That right now we just reading that off the top of my, or listing that off the top of my head, I'm like, of course, I'm a big people pleaser because of you know the trauma that you know I experienced, and if it's if, even if it's not one um a lot of people think trauma is like one overt event but you know um the the facilitator was talking about you know the concept of c p t s d complex p t s d which is which is a series of of neglect or or abuse or or little sorts of things that you know happen oftentimes in early childhood that make you you know, sort of have people pleasing or fawning as as your your trauma response. Anyway, all that's to say, I learned a lot from that session because, um, one, a lot of folks attended that session and, and other similar sessions, meaning... Which, which makes me realize, you know, that really resonates with a lot of folks, but to, you know, that concept in itself, it really clicked for me. I, I have a lot of aha moments in um, running these wellness check-ins myself, which is really powerful. But the last one we had, you know, um, it was also very great, but a, a large bulk of it was uh, using that first open share session uh, to sort of address what we were talking about before, you know, the, the Oakland Chinatown attack slash anti-Asian racism that's been pervasive. And it's been interesting hearing from people um, of different experiences, but ultimately you know I've heard in that space people were you know they're saying like oh I, I really needed this space I live in a place where I you know either can't talk to my friends because of pandemic sorts of things or or I don't live in an area with a lot of Asian folks so to have that space where there are Asian folks coming together to to collectively grieve even co- collectively share these experiences that are oftentimes you know so minimized and 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 deemed unrelatable to so many folks, you know. I think that's always very impactful. Finding community in sharing and hearing the experiences of others, uh, particularly through um, these very traumatic and, and difficult times.
0: Yeah, the the open share. I think so much can be learned, even if you don't consider yourself a mental health professional or expert. Your lived experience can shape someone. Um, in ways that we can't even imagine, right? And so just coming, showing up and being vulnerable, I think, is healing in and of itself. And I know that Asian Mental Health Project um, supports other BIPOC communities and social movements like Black Lives Matter. And maybe when I was thinking about this question, it was hard for me to articulate what I wanted to ask. So I'm just going to go ahead and ask it the way it came to me. But how have. You and this community, Asian Mental Health Project, practiced allyship alongside, you know, the Asian American movement advancing it, advancing mental health alongside other movements that have their own unique sets of challenges, issues, um, people. How can you be an ally alongside these other movements? Yeah, I think the first thing is recognizing
1: the interconnectedness. You know, for me, Um, I can't advocate against anti-Asian racism without advocating for black and brown liberation. You know, I think it's very important. So one thing that I I really like to highlight with my project is is contextualizing that pan-Asian, you know, or Asian-American experience. Like what systems in place brought us to where we are today? Well, (laughs) these same systems also, you know, affect and oppress black brown indigenous communities um you know just sorry I'm naming off the top of my head so I apologize for potentially you know misnaming or or leaving out community but you know like essentially marginalized communities are all affected by the same sorts of systems put in place that uplift you know white supremacy and all that and and um yeah so I think for myself, it's very important to recognize the intersections of all these different things and get to sort of the root of the issue. There's this really great graphic where um, it's like, um, and it was, you know, spread out last summer, um, sort of in the wake of everything that happened with, um, you know, George Floyd and the very much, you know, needed Black Lives Matter movement. There's a graphic that I saw where it was just, you know, it was like, a little plant growing, and and the plant was you know therapy and like like clinical you know cl- cl- all all therapy and mental health care up there, and then below where all the roots was like you know systemic racism, housing you know oppressive systems, patriarchal system, white supremacy, all that stuff sort of contributes to mental health, and that's something I really want to highlight with this project. You know, analyze like we cannot advocate or I cannot advocate for accessible mental health care without advocating for, you know, without without advocating for every marginalized community and, and advocating against oppressive systems and advocating against racism, against all those who experience it. So.
0: So you touched on this intersectionality of mental health and social justice, and we spoke a little bit about this before the podcast started. And so this is sort of an intersectionality that I'd love to dive into. So, um, I just want to read a little quote from McLean, which is a teaching facility of Harvard Medical School, and they did a great article about um, Asian American mental health, and they said that mental health stigma affects all ethnicities, cultures, and nationalities, but Asian Americans may be more impacted than most. This was very surprising to me. The National Latino and Asian American Study reported that while 18% of the general US population sought mental health services and resources, only 8.6% of Asian Americans did so. And a related study found that while that white US citizens take advantage of mental health services at 3 times the rate of Asian Americans. And so You know, I'm curious just from your experience or from, you know, people in your community sharing about their experiences. Do you have, um, yeah, a perspective on why you think Asian Americans are not reaching out for mental health in the same way as, I guess, the general US population?
1: Yeah. um, Yeah. I I can speak from my, you know, livid experience. Like I I, first I'll speak to, you know, why I personally didn't seek mental health care and why those stats resonate with me. But with my experience, you know, working on this project, um, I've also, you know, identified different barriers there. So, I mean, I think the main barriers, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, cultural stigma, but like, what does that mean? Right. It means not being able from a granular, like interpersonal familial level. It means not being able to voice your feelings to, you know, the people who are supposed to be taking care of you or are taking care of you. And I mean that not in a way to, you know, necessarily condemn the culture that I came from, because that's also something. Yeah, I think we, we talked in a lot of sessions where where people go to non-Asian therapists or, or you know, therapists who, who are white, their sort of guttural response to like, oh, like, oh, you're having family problems, you know, cut them out or or they automatically assume that you are being tiger-parented and all of that. So yeah, I mean, all that's to say, you know, cultural stigma is real and it starts in the family, but it also is because of a larger, you know, obviously, you know, cultural phenomenon that in turn turns into a lack of vocabulary. You know, I think i I'd recently talked to my parents about, you know, my own anxiety, PTSD, and there really weren't many terms for that, at least not ones I could recognize or ones that it was ever taught. So a lack of vocabulary there and a lack of being able to name exactly what's going on, I think also contributes to a lack of, of being able to do that. And, and not to mention, um, you know, the, the sort of Asian diaspora or the, the, the you know, pan-Asian experience of it, as I name it is so vast and, and oftentimes so, you know, viewed as a monolith, but, you know, there's so many different ethnic uh, ethnic groups and ethnicities, you know, within the Asian experience in itself. So transferring that to the westernized sense of therapy where it's all very unified and all in English and all in these, these, you know, sort of American based psychological terms. It's really difficult to sort of translate that into your own homes. So yeah, so that's a barrier there. You know, other barriers I see are also financial barriers. I think that that might go with the larger, you know, cultural stigma of it, but either one, not being able to afford therapy because it is really damn expensive or two, not seeing the value in therapy because, spending money, investing money in something is, is what's more important than your own mental health. So that's, that's a narrative that I'm hoping to dive more into and, and hopefully alter, you know, one increase the value of, 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 mental health. Uh, cause I really think that permeates through your whole life, but also like, how can we make mental health care, you know, less of a, of a fun, like bring, put less of a financial barrier on mental health care. So, you know, there's cultural stigma, financial barriers. Oh, there's so many barriers <laughs> and things. Um, but I mean, specific to Asian communities. Oh, another thing is, um, representation. I don't just mean in the media and, and movies and Hollywood and all that. I mean, in, in, um, finding a therapist for me myself, I was very particular about, you know, finding a therapist with lived experience as me. And I was able to do that, which I'm so, so grateful for. Um, you know, she is, she is, um, she's actually South Asian. Um, but you know, we have a lot of very similar like cultural values and things I just don't have to explain to her. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm finding in a lot of, um, speaking to people, like the, the, the exhausting part about seeking therapy is having to explain your cultural background and, you know, all the re-traumatization that goes on in there and, and the, the exhaustion that entails. So one thing that's very important to me, it was for, was for me was finding someone with a shared background, uh, and unfortunately, you know, I don't exactly know why this is. so I don't want to pinpoint like a cause to it. You know, there I haven't seen too many. Um, you know, there you know there are a lot of Asian American and Asian therapists and and mental health uh, practitioners there that I've seen, but, you know, it, it still is a small percentage in comparison to, to white business, especially if you go to databases such as, you know, psychology today, um, which is, I think maybe the largest or most commonly used, um, database for mental health professionals, you know, when you scroll down all the pages, they're all, you know, mostly white, which can be really hard and daunting and, and definitely serves as a barrier there. Um, but, you know, the folks, the, the amazing, people of color and, and Asian folks and uh, who are therapists who I've been able to talk to, you know, they they really are trying to fight the fight for, um, you know, more culturally, uh, embracing and affirming care, uh, that I think is so important, but, you know, <laughs> I always say, you know, there's not enough there and, and that makes me sad, but that's also something that, you know, we we're, we're trying to fight for. So,
0: yeah you said so much in there and i think something to pull out which leans into the social justice piece that i think is so alive in this intersectionality between mental health and social justice is even understanding the origins of psychotherapy i'm no historian or expert but in reading this article they went on to say that mainstream psychotherapy in america has its roots in western europe and Assumptions that some take for granted, like talking about it will make you feel better, may not be shared with all of these different subgroups within the Asian American category who may prefer to deal with emotions by doing other things, such as sports or academics or other modalities for accessing their pain or trauma or just lived experience. So, I mean, in this community, have you? Have you seen other modalities beyond talk therapy or just other ways you've seen Asian Americans connecting to their mental health practices or ways of embodying greater wholeness, trust, resilience in in a time that can be so tender and fragile and
1: totally scary? Yeah. I mean, absolutely, yes. I have seen other modalities. And I think it's important to tap into those because uh, therapy is one piece of the Pie. Oh, hated that analogy, but we're running with it. Uh, therapy is one piece of the pie, but finding ways to self soothe and and finding community—that's also very much part of it. And that's something that I'm learning a lot. I think in myself, you know, um, you know, being in and out of therapy for a couple of years, like in between the times where I'm not seeing a therapist, like I, I, I'm not just like completely uh, in in a. In a flurry, you know, like I, I personally like to come up with different, uh, modalities that, that feel good to me. So, I mean, I mean, beyond that, you know, you, you mentioned talk therapy, there's also other kinds of therapy. My therapist personally suggested that I try EMDR, which is, I think it's, uh, oh, I'm in desensitization and reprocessing. So that, that's more of a, like a, like a um, a physiological modality that, that pairs maybe with talk therapy or, or, you know, a standalone. I personally, I'm not, doing that yet, because I feel like it would probably be better in a in-person space. And now that we're all teletherapy, not going to try that. But yeah, there are, aside from talk therapy, there are other sorts of therapies that, um, you know, that can be utilized for, for different symptoms and such like that, such as EMDR or brain spotting. But then aside from that, uh, really leaning into things that bring you comfort, joy, steadiness, safety. I think those are the sorts of things that I've been leaning into myself, you know, um, I grew up, you know, playing music and listening to music, uh, drawing and stuff like that and, and, you know, finding different ways to express myself in a way that's not necessarily talk therapy, which can be very exhausting. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, and uh, also with the project, uh, I did mention, you know, we, we do try to bring in registered, you know, mental health professionals, um, you know, licensed clinical social workers and marriage and family therapists and stuff like that. But I also want to bring in, you know, people who are, you know, on the holistic healing side, um, you know, sort of to your point about, you know, uh you know, psychology and the sort of the the westernized understanding of it but there's also other healing you know there's other things ways to heal and other healing properties so um you know I, i'm hoping to you know bring in different types of wellness practitioners uh whether it's you know holistic healers or or people who use you know eastern medicine or or stuff like that you know um i think it's important to consider um you know have a more globalized view of things which can be very
0: hard to do but we're working on it there. yeah Integrating the mind with the body and actually walking in that in that wholeness every day and going back also to some of these barriers that you were listing before that can make it challenging for Asian Americans to really access mental health in the same way as their white counterparts. Um, I also want to bring in the idea of the model minority myth, which I know you spoke about in your feature on the CNN article. You know, for some, the, the pressure of being part of a model minority can stand in the way of treatment. So in the same article, they go to say that you know, many Asian Americans see themselves as part of a group that's seamlessly integrated into their society. And so there's kind of a lumping of categories. And, you know, they can kind of be bubbled into a group that's considered intelligent, industrious, fully in charge of their lives, financially abundant. Successful. Um, And so for many, admitting to a weakness, quote, would be letting down the entire community. It's stigmatized or taboo to actually come out and say, hey, I need help, or hey, I would just like to seek out mental health as a preventative tool so that things don't get worse. I can maintain a sense of safety and a, a sense of well being. So to get into this model minority myth, Um, what do you think about that? And do you think we need a new story to replace this myth? And if so, what would that be?
1: I think what needs to be understood and learned and unlearned, both individually, I think, you know, in myself and, and other, you know, folks in the Asian community is that it is a myth. It is a doctored narrative made to you know, like, like understanding the purpose of it and, and my understanding of the purpose of the lot of minority myths is, you know, driving a wedge between different um, minorities slash less marginalized communities saying, you know, Asian folks can have uh, financial prosperity and, and do X, Y, and Z and, you know, all, all the stereotypes that go along with it. Why can't, why can't anyone else do it? You know, like, and that's sort of extremely, I and mean, that's extremely problematic. So I think, actively trying to dispel that bias and that myth um, is something that, that, that can be very hard to do. Cause you know, I think I, I also grew up, I grew up in a space that, you know, I grew up in, a, in an area that was like a, like 70% Asian folks. You know, I grew up, you know, with, with, with mostly Asian folks around me and definitely, you know, that there's the stereotype of, of, you know, like valuing good grades and high academic success and and X, Y, and Z. And I was sort of trying to digest, you know, why, why that is, because, you know, it's one thing to call it a myth, but it's also another thing to, to dig in and, and understand, like, like, again, like contextualizing, like, why, why are we, why are we here? How come, how come I am in an environment with, you know, 70% Asian folks, how come my parents are also hounding me on, on trying to be Dr. lawyer, you know, all, all those sorts of things. Like why, why is this here? Why do those stereotypes exist? But then why am I also living it? You know? And so for me, it's important to understand that history behind the model minority myth and then also the history with the, policy and, and like immigration law and sort of why that exists, you know, I think I'm going to butcher the history of it because I don't remember dates for the life of me. But, you know, there, you know, as mentioned before, there's they're sort of cherry picking of of um, I'll speak from the, the Chinese immigration perspective, you know, I think in, in the era of uh, gold, the gold rush and and mines and building trains, a lot of folks were, you know, permitted entry from China to work on these trains with the promise of like, hey, you can send money back to your family and X, Y, and Z Well, those promises were not met. And as you were mentioning before, there was a lot of the, the, the idea of um, yellow peril, which is like instilling fear and, and xenophobia about, you know, Asian folks or Chinese people, um, which then, you know, led to, I think, you know, an immigration, I think it was maybe the, oh, I'm really going to butcher that, but there, there was an immigration ban placed on, on, um, Chinese folks, uh, because of these, you know, pervasive, uh, um, themes of xenophobia and, and, um, you know, racism, um, but then later, I think it was maybe after or around the Cold War where people were, you know, selected to come to the, you know, the, the doors were open again, but they were selected to specifically come go to grad school or, or you know, fill these roles in, in it, you know, these roles that were, you know, for helping to, to advance the U S in the space race or, or stuff like that, or, uh, people who, uh, I'll, I'll speak from, you know, what I know of my father's experience. My dad is an opera singer. And so he was, you know, he got a, essentially what is a golden ticket to the U S because, um, he, you know, won an opera competition and, and the, the grand prize was to come study in the U S and when he got his green card, it was, he was sort of admitted, uh, because he was, and I quote this, they called him an exceptional alien. <laughs> which is really weird <laughs> um yeah all kinds of whack all kinds of bad but you know there's there's that that selection there of you know why uh why was my family able to come here and what precedent does that set for the way I, I live my life um so you know academic achievements and and going to school was really important for my mom and my dad to to come start a life here. So that was sort of the precedent that I, I had in my life. So all that's to say, it's important to analyze history and where we came from, and also in turn dispel the stereotypes and myths and, you know, reject slash dismantle the systems that
0: are put in place to oppress others because of that. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that history um, and sharing about your father who received that label and that is somehow supposed to be deemed normal when in fact that can be incredibly traumatizing. You know, considering this moment and COVID and how many people have lost their jobs, how many people have had to reevaluate their life and their priorities and what's important because of something that we can't control, like a pandemic and uh, skyrocketing unemployment. And so I imagine there are, I don't have any numbers on me, but just a significant percentage of um, Asians who have also probably lost their jobs and have had to grapple with who am I? If I am not my job, who am I? What is my identity? What is my worth? You know, tying this into this larger systemic context for for understanding just self-worth and 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 who are we without jobs, like that can be incredibly challenging. So something I like to explore on the show is like the old story versus the new story. So the old story I see is uh, mental health issues are these individual pathologies that are just unique to you because of the person you are. Whereas it seems like the new story that's emerging is, and I I actually, this was inspired by Laura of the Mind Health Spot, who is one of the experts on your platform. And I dug around into her work because she also sits at this intersection of mental health and justice. And she raised the question, what if our society saw certain mental health issues as understandable responses to our problematic and oppressive systems and environments rather than individual pathology. And this just supports everything that we've been talking about and actually recognizing that it's not me and my private issue. It's part of a larger context. That doesn't mean this excuses my action and responsibility, but I can have a better understanding of why I might be feeling, let's say, a loss of identity when I lose a job because now I don't have this you know, cushion to support my self-worth or whatever the the reasons are that create negative mental health. But understanding that this is a new story emerging – What do you see as a news story emerging in mental health for Asian Americans, especially during this heightened time of anti-Asian sentiment and hate violence? Yeah,
1: I think the news story, and this is, you know, represented by a lot of the progress that I've seen in the past few years of doing this work and just sort of, you know, witnessing the world change. The new story is that we as Asian folks are, maybe I'll speak, you know, on on Asian Americans, we get, we get to write our own story. I think that's the new story. Uh, Whereas in the past, our story or path is, is written, Maybe by our parents or our families or by this greater society with these deeply rooted systems that tell us who we are. We don't have to do that anymore. We can create a personal, you know, mental health journey or system that maybe incorporates parts of, of you know traditional psychotherapy, um, but also incorporates parts of our culture that we want to carry with us. We can tell stories about ourselves without feeling like we have to be adjacent to whiteness or another group. We can be who we are without being the quote-unquote model minority. We can break out of those labels ourselves. I think that's the new story. The new story is being able to truly understand who we are, where we come from, and, and taking that and making... You know the best decisions, and, and and being able to care for ourselves and understand ourselves in a way that we haven't before. Yeah, I think for me, that resonates because you know I I feel like I used to live my life as a series of what am I going to do to make my family proud, or what am I going to do to get. A partner, keep a partner, keep them happy, you know, like, what am I going to do to live into the expectations of others? And I think that's very much shaped by, you know, the, the society that we live in, the expectations that are put upon um, Asian folks, the expectations that are set, you know, in my own family culture there. But I'm trying to unlearn and, and reject that and, <laughs> and, you know, pave my own path there. Um, and that is by receiving mental health care, understanding that I deserve to receive mental health care, understanding that I am contextualizing my experience and understanding where I, like how I got to the way I am today or how my family got here and taking all of that information and making a new future for myself and breaking that, those, those cycles of trauma and, and, and harmful cycles in general and, and oppressive systems as best as I can as this one tiny little human being.
0: Well said, Carrie. Thank you for naming that. Um, I can really tell that this has been a very personal journey for you and when one person stands up the rest follow and so I think what you're doing is very important because it's destigmatizing mental health and saying hey me seeking this out is actually a strength not a weakness and I have the potential to shift the narrative and empower others who are also on a similar journey but our strength is in our numbers. So uh, thank you again. I also know we're kind of shifting now into this envisioning part of the conversation. And I know that you have a full-time job. You lead a very busy life. And Asian Mental Health Project is your passion, right? It's It's your baby that you brought into the world. And so... For those who are listening who are looking to start their own, let's say, mental health or anti-racism journey and path, but are also you know, juggling full-time jobs, really busy, even in these COVID times, what's your advice to juggling it all, someone who wants to dig into this and also juggle the rest of life? Do you have any guidance or tips for people who are just starting out on this path? yes
1: 100% <laughs> many tips from many uh, many of my uh, i like to say well, who i don't know who said this first but you know failing forward uh, is sort of where i'm going there lots of mistakes are made and lots of mistakes will be made um so i think yes my advice to that is if you see that there is an issue that pertains in your life very likely it's an issue that other folks experience too so if you're thinking that you want to pursue a project and and fight for social justice or speak out about something whatever it is really do it be mindful and 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 do do the research uh but definitely I would say do it and um in terms of juggling everything uh, a full-time job um this project a couple of other uh sort of obligations here and there it can get to be a lot um that's for sure um so I think my biggest advice uh, that I need to learn myself is to set boundaries. (laughs) Um, Setting boundaries, not just just saying no to things that you don't want to do, but really setting boundaries and and sort of being clear on what you want to do and, and setting the tangible steps toward that. And also recognizing that everything takes baby steps. You won't get to your very large... Dream or goal asap. It doesn't happen. And, and, if, and if in my case you're figuring it out as you go, I truly still feel like I don't know what I'm doing. But then I look back at the baby steps that I've taken and and sort of where where how far this project has come and how far I've come, and I'm like, oh wow, that's a that's a very big change. So yeah, I mean, I think my biggest advice is yeah, understand understand your why why you want to do it. Is it is it serving you and is it serving the community or people that you care about? If so, yes, <laughs> uh, go forth and do it. And two, um, understanding your how, how you're going to do it, and but also understanding that it's okay to have, have limitations there and, and to set boundaries. And I think there's constantly a feeling of like, am I doing enough? Because social justice, mental health, there are so many issues. There are literally thousands of years of, of issues to unpack. And, and I think something that I've had to swallow is I can't, I can't hold it all. I can't I can't help it all. So this is also from like a growth perspective, you know. I, I mean I think really finding the niche and, and and finding the
0: those 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 tangible steps is really important to me. And I loved what you said about setting boundaries, because I think that plays into the people pleasing. Um, that we were talking about earlier and how actually setting a boundary and saying a no from a true purposeful place can actually mean a yes to what is really most important to you. As we move through 2021, what is next for Asian Mental Health Project? You named a few things earlier about finding different types of experts in other modalities, but yeah, what is this year Shaping up to be? What is the big vision? How can our audience of listeners help? Anything you'd like to share?
1: Yes, we have very big goals for this year. As mentioned before, I was taking baby steps, but this time I'm shifting to big, large vision, big, large goals. So that's sort of where we're headed for 2021. In 2021, I'm hoping to file for nonprofit status. Uh, but let me back up. I'm filing for nonprofit status because um, along with our community events, and our multimedia resources that we are hoping to continue to build and offer more of and and be more intentional with, I want to establish a mental health fund because I'm fully understanding that financial barriers are, if not the biggest, you know, one of the biggest barriers to seeking mental health care. So I'm hoping to establish a mental health fund. And in order to do so, in order to generate revenue to distribute the money, I have to file for 501c3 nonprofit status, which means, um, We've got to work it out for us there. So that's definitely something I'm looking forward to this next year. We're building out our core team and and building out even more of our teams to make it more of, instead of just like my personal project, a sustainable community-owned or organization. That's really what I envision it to be. And I want to build tools for, you know, if someone wanted to replicate this in their own community, that, that would be great. You know, I, I think my 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 vision is to, my my overall vision is hoping that everybody on the planet feels supported in their mental health. Obviously huge vision. But in order to do that, you know, I I'm I'd love to share and and spread the tools and resources as best as I can that hopefully, you know, empower folks or or you know give people the tools to to put their mental health first or their community's mental health first. Um so yeah, that that's pretty lofty there. But uh what can the community do to help this goal? Glad you asked. We are, you know, trying to revamp our fundraising campaign because in order to file for a 501c3 nonprofit status, um, you know, there's a little you know, amount of legal and accounting that we have to go through uh, and that will cost money. <laughs> um, and, you know, we currently have a GoFundMe page. I hope it's okay that I'm talking about the GoFundMe page.
0: Please, actually, you're answering the, one of the final questions I had, which is, For those who want to connect with Asian Mental Health Project, support, learn, connect with you, how can they find you, please direct us.
1: Yes, thank you. Uh, to follow Asian Mental Health Project, our most active site is our Instagram. So it's at Asian Mental Health Project. And in my Instagram bio, you can sort of, uh, you know, go to the, the link tree that we have Facebook. We have our website, Asian Mental Health Project.com. Um So, you know, we try to keep that branding succinct. But in terms of our GoFundMe, which, you know, if you contribute to, that'd be fantastic. It would pay for um, our fees going into um, filing for nonprofit status. You know, you can find the GoFundMe me through our Instagram bio. But for myself, uh, you can find me at curiosities on Instagram. Again, my most active channel. I think it's the Gen Z millennial in me, but here we are. Uh, So curiosities is uh, my name. So C-A-R-R-I-E-O-S-I-T-I-E-S.
0: Amazing. And I just wanted to also name that I am so impressed by you and your generation. Yeah. Gen Z is killing it. You guys and gals are just I think really very proactive, and you spot culture before it happens. And I am just endlessly um, inspired by the movements that you're creating and the energy that you have to see your visions into reality. So, just to close out this conversation, you gave us plenty of wisdom to marinate on today, but can you leave? us with a final message or a question that we can reflect on beyond this conversation.
1: I think my final question is, how are you really? And yeah, or what what can you and your power do about it and or and how can others support you? That's sort of my question there. And I feel like a lot of what mental health boils down to. And then my statement is if you are feeling that you are overwhelmed or you know or if you're struggling with anything, please know that you absolutely deserve mental health care and absolutely deserve to put your mental health first. Uh, and I really hope and implore any listeners or viewers to, to do so and really think about what, what your mental health means to you, pushing that forward because you absolutely
0: deserve it. Thank you, Carrie. It's Always um, so relatable and so thoughtful. And I am really supporting um, Asian Mental Health Project. Very excited to see your big visions for 2021 uh, come to life. And I encourage our listeners today to check out Carrie's work, check out one of her wellness check-ins. Check Check out one of her wellness (laughs) check-ins. And just yeah, see what sparks your curiosity like in your name, because I think that mental health is um, has always been important, but it hasn't ever been as important as it is today. And so thank you so much, Carrie, for joining us, for sharing, for being vulnerable, for shedding light on a lot of really important social, cultural health issues. And uh, for those of you listening, if you feel uplifted, shifted, moved in any way, please, um, you know, spread this conversation far and wide. Give us a rating, review, anything you can do to just help us amplify. Um, and we'll see you next week. Thank you again so much, Carrie. Thank you. This is so
1: amazing. I really, really appreciate uh, you having me here uh, and for all your thoughtful questions and also you know, posing and just talking about the intersection of social justice and mental health. I don't think that's talked about enough. So I really appreciate you giving me a platform and giving that topic a platform. And yeah, thank you.
0: Thank you so much. And we will see you guys next week. The Alt-Normal. This show is produced by Resonance, the creative practice of Dig, Seed, Grow. If you enjoyed this conversation, please show us the love. You can subscribe, share, or leave a review. We'd be so grateful to help us amplify these stories far and wide. Thanks so much.